You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Mark chapter number 10 this evening. Mark chapter 10. Enjoyed that set of songs since Jesus came into my heart. Hopefully when you sang that, you could say that honestly, um, that your life has never been the same since Christ came into your heart. To think about that moment that you got saved and how in that moment Christ changed your life completely, but hopefully how he's been continually working in your life and just how much of a difference Christ makes uh, in our life. Uh, excited to be able to preach to you this evening. As I mentioned uh, this morning, I'll mention again, please pray for uh, Pastor. He is a little bit under the weather. Um, today, and so I uh, didn't have much of a voice at all. He called me this morning, and I could barely understand what he was saying at all, um, and so be in prayer for him, just for him to recover uh, quickly, and um, appreciate that uh, as much as possible there. Um, I've enjoyed uh, being able to study for this. Uh, I mentioned Pastor isn't feeling very well, and so uh, I think it was on Saturday. Uh, yesterday afternoon around 2 o'clock, Pastor texted me and said, hey, uh, I think I'm losing my voice a little bit, it was right after the Ohio State game. Uh, said, I'm losing my voice a little bit, and uh, I'm going to try to be there tomorrow morning, um, but uh, I'm going to have Brother Yoder to, uh, there to, uh, to back me up just in case I can't be. He said, could you preach Sunday evening? I said, sure, that's no problem, you know. Um, and then uh, he, ca- he texted me this morning and said, I need you to call me as soon as you can. So I called him, and he just, he, I told him he sounded like death. Not death warmed over, but just death by itself, pretty much. And so um, he wasn't able to be here this morning, but um, just excited to see what the Lord did this morning. I don't know about you, but I always love to listen to Brother Yoda preach. Um, part of it is because you never know what you're going to get. We always joke around with the schedule thing this morning and how we kind of changed it up a little bit. Um, but it's kind of like that, um, I compare to, when I was in college, we had this, uh, I think it was the vice president there. His name was uh, Dr. Mullenix, and he would come up and just uh, full of wisdom. And he would have, he would preach during chapel sometimes, but we always called them, you know, like kind of campfire chats. It was almost like a grandpa kind of sitting down beside you and just sharing just loads of wisdom. I always love to listen to Brother Yoder preach and just, um, just to listen to him expound upon just the years of experience he's had serving the Lord and to see how God has worked. And uh, his Bible study is just uh, such an encouragement. So hopefully that was a blessing to you this morning. Uh, and hopefully, um, at least it won't be too much worse this evening, all right? So we're in Mark chapter 10 this evening, um, looking at the Word of God. Have you ever left home and had a funny feeling like you forgot something before? How many ever had that before? Raise your hand. Kind of you get out, you get in the car, you take off. Maybe you're heading for church perhaps, and uh, you know, you're like, I feel like I forgot something. I was uh, reading a story that reminded me of something, kind of as I was coming in this evening, you know, with a pastor being gone, and he's the organized one, and Nate being the other organized one, and me being... I'm like here for the smoke and lights and stuff, you know. I'm, I'm the entertainer, I guess, sometimes. Um, but I was trying to, you know, to be organized and make sure I didn't forget anything. But I had heard a story about a boy that was talking about every single family vacation they went on, they would get down the road and the mom would always say, we need to stop, we need to turn around. I'm pretty sure I left the iron plugged in. And so they'd turn around, go back to the house. Her husband would go in, you know, the iron would be unplugged and turned off, of course. And this continued for multiple vacations, she said, until finally... Uh, one time they were heading out for vacation, and she said, hey, you know, we need to stop. We need to go back. I think I left the iron on. So he pulls over to the side of the road, doesn't say anything at all, puts the car in park, gets out, goes back to the trunk and kind of pops the trunk for a second, closes the trunk, walks back up, sits in the driver's seat, and hands the iron to his wife. <laughs> and so hopefully we won't forget anything this evening. I think we've got everything all ready to go here. But we're in 
the passage of Mark chapter 10. And our passage introduces us to a young man who is searching for something here. He's often called the rich young ruler. We've been heard him titled. And Matthew tells us that he was a young man. Luke describes him as this ruler or what we would call, sometimes what we call an aristocrat, someone that's got uh, some wealth with them. And it's interesting, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that he was rich. And he was a man who had two things. He had everything, and at the same time, he had absolutely nothing. He was wealthy and successful, but as we look into the story, we see he turned away from Jesus with absolutely nothing. He was searching for something more in life. You know, it's interesting, in this world that we live in today, there are millions, perhaps billions of people that are searching for something that they really can't even put their finger on what it is that they're searching for, but they're all searching for something. And 2,000 years ago, we see this man here who came to Jesus himself looking for something. Look with me at verse number 17 here in Mark chapter 10. The Bible says this, and when he was gone forth into the way, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again, and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening for the opportunity to circle around your word. Lord, as we read it, to have your Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts and our lives. How often we take this relationship that we have with you for granted, and yet, Lord, how precious it truly is. Lord, as we look at the life of this man, this rich young ruler here, may we not focus on, Lord, the faults and failures in his life, but may we look at his life and say, Lord, where do I need to grow? Lord, what does your word have for me? Lord, I pray that you be with us as we look at your word. I pray that you be with me as I speak. Give me the wisdom to say what needs to be said, Lord, and help me not to get in front of and block off what you mean to apply here this evening. May you be glorified through all that's said and all that's done. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Here in this passage, we don't know this young man's name. It just says he's a rich young ruler based upon the description here. But since we're going to be talking about him for a while, I figured we just kind of give him a name. And so as I begin to think about names, we're going to call him Ben. Ben, for short, I guess it works that well because I have a son named Ben, so it's an easy name for me to remember. But we're going to call him Ben. That may not have been his name, but we're going to talk a lot about him. And if you look in this story, Ben did so many things right. 
He came at the right time. You see, it says that he was young here. If I were to tell you when's the best time to come to Jesus, we would say when they're young. Today would be the best day. Not, not tomorrow, but today. As young as possible. And so he comes at the right time. He's young here in this passage. He came to the right person, Jesus himself. He came with the right energy. The Bible says that he was what? He was running. Not just a, an apathetic walk, not a kind of drag in his feet. He came running to Jesus here in this passage. He came with the right attitude. He says he knelt before Jesus. He came even with the right question. He says, how can I have eternal life? He did all of these things right. Ben came running, smiling, full of hope. But he walks away at the end, full of sorrow, dragging his feet with his only hope in his wealth. And so as we examine this amazing encounter that takes place here in the passage of Mark, I want us to look at five, if I can call these episodes, and five life lessons that go along with them. Number one, if you're taking notes here, number one we see is a strange conversation. Look back there in verse number 17. He begins to ask this question, it says, And when he, came, he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him this question, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? But there is none that is good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. As you read that passage, what is wrong with this picture? It's a very strange conversation. Jesus, he asked him, how can I inherit eternal life? And the first thing Jesus says is, do you know the Ten Commandments? Why would Jesus tell someone to keep the commandments to find eternal life? Now, let's start with this. None of us can keep the Ten Commandments faithfully, right? But even if we could keep the Ten Commandments somehow, that's not what gets us eternal life, right? We can never live the perfect life. And so why does he say, don't you know the, the commandments here. You can't get into God's kingdom by obeying rules and regulations. And so what was Jesus doing when he asks him this question? As he speaks to this rich young Euler, he, he knew that everyone that was Jewish knew the Ten Commandments. Uh, they had them memorized. Same way you and I could count from one to ten, they had the Ten Commandments memorized. They knew them frontward, backward, leftward, rightward, every way possible they knew the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are divided into two sections. If you ever go through those Ten Commandments, uh, two tables, the first four you see talk about our relationship with God, the importance of not taking his name in vain, the importance of uh, protecting the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, the importance of not having other idols. The first four talk about our relationship with God. And then the last six deal with our relationship with human beings, uh, the importance of not murdering and not stealing and those types of things in the Ten Commandments. But if you go through this passage, you'll see that he intentionally omits one of the Ten Commandments. Now, he doesn't give them an order here. You might not have caught it because maybe you don't have necessarily all of them memorized sitting in the back of your mind like these Jewish folks would have. But what if I said this? What if I said, I'm going to count to ten for you? And I said, one, two, four, five, six. Immediately, you catch on that I missed a number, right? You know, obviously, Dave hasn't practiced counting very lately. He missed the number three. It would be very obvious to us in the same way here in this passage it would be obvious to them. Jesus leaves out one. Did you catch which one that he omits? Look back at the passage here and verse number 19. And we see him begin to go over these Ten Commandments dealing with our relationship with one another. And so he said, hey, do not murder. Check. He's got that one in there. 
Um, let's see, what are the other ones here? He said, um, don't murder, uh, don't commit adultery, he, check. He's got that one covered in there. Uh, don't steal, he's got that one. Don't bear false witness, or he says defraud in this passage here, he's got that one. Honor thy father and thy mother, that one's covered. Which one did Jesus leave off intentionally? Thou shalt not covet. In other words, covet means a desire to have more and more stuff. See, Jesus knew that this specifically was Ben's, this rich young ruler's problem. Ben smiled and said, hey, I've kept all of these commandments since I was a boy. Hey, all those ones that you brought up, I've done a great job of keeping those commandments here. Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. You see, Ben already had a God in his life. Ben already had a God, and his God was gold, and it was greed. And there is only room for one God on the throne of your life. And so he doesn't say it here, but he says quickly, he says, there's one thing that you lack. Listen, Jesus will probe your heart to expose any competing gods. As he goes through the Ten Commandments, he didn't leave it off on accident, but he knew exactly what Ben's God really was. Jesus wanted to point out to Ben that he had a problem with greed and with covetousness, but he didn't just come out and say, and say hey, Ben, you're greedy. Hey, hey, you're all worried about your stuff here. He keeps probing until Ben sees the problem himself. You ever been to a doctor before, and um, they have you sit up on the table, lay back on the table, and they begin to kind of push in different spots and ask you, does this hurt? Does that hurt? until eventually you're crying on the table and they find out where exactly you hurt. Here in this passage, Jesus is doing the exact same thing. And the same thing he does to us, he keeps probing us to show us where we have other gods in our lives. He doesn't just come out and say it, but continues to probe and, and, and to push for us to realize where we lack. The Holy Spirit, if I can put it this way, is working on you as an individual right now. Listen, God has you here specifically for a reason. Not because you want to hear my voice, perhaps, but God has you here for a reason, and the reason is this. He wants to work on you, and he wants to gently probe your heart, and he wants you to ask the question, what is that thing, or that person, or that activity that has become more important to you than the true and living God? What has taken the place of where God truly should be? Jesus says, hey, do you know the Ten Commandments? Well, obviously I know the Ten Commandments. Let me list them for you then. He begins to list them off, and he says, hey, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. I'm doing a good job. And he says, there's one thing you lack. And we see here, number two, the shocking advice that Jesus gives. He says, then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Notice that first. Before ever pointing out a fault, it says he loved him and said unto him, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, Sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross, and follow me. Jesus said here, there's one thing you're lacking. Now, most of us would say, hey, if there's only one thing I'm lacking, I think I'm doing a pretty good job, right? I mean, I could come up with a whole list of things that I feel like I'm lacking. But he says, there's one thing here that you're lacking. And this one verse, I think, sometimes has caused more confusion than anything else. Because multitudes of people read this and think, hey, 
I want to obey God, and so should I just go and sell everything that I have, give it to the poor, and you know, take this vow of poverty and follow Jesus? And some people have made that commitment based upon just this verse alone. And here's the short answer. You don't need to sell all of your riches unless the riches have become your God. As you look in Scripture, you'll see that Ben is the only person, this year trying ruler is the only person to whom Jesus ever speaks these words. Nicodemus was wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy. But Jesus never tells them to sell all their possessions because Jesus knew that their possessions didn't possess them. And yet he saw a difference here. And so he says, sell all your possessions, give to the poor. Jesus looked into Ben's heart here and saw that money was his God. You know what's amazing to me is Jesus sees what problems we have in our life, and yet he probes to allow us to discover what those problems are. The Holy Spirit works in your heart for you to realize what those problems are in your life, what those shortcomings are in my life. He probes until we find the problem area. But what's amazing is Christ provides a personal solution to remove any competing gods. You ever buy a an article of clothing that's labeled as one size fits all, and you realize maybe it should be labeled as one size fits most? Here, Jesus doesn't say, hey, everybody just do the exact same thing and you'll all be good to go. He provides a personal solution. He provides mentoring to this gentleman here. Ben wanted more and more. That's what it means to covet here. And so Jesus was simply giving Ben a solution to get rid of that God. It wasn't that money was evil, but that money had become a false god to Ben here. Notice Jesus says here, you're not losing treasure by giving it to the poor, but you're gaining treasures in heaven. You're just transferring your wealth to something that's going to last for eternity. Jump over to Matthew chapter 6 with me real quick. Matthew chapter number 6. And the Sermon on the Mount, we've just begun going over this uh, with the teens on Wednesday nights. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns that there's only room for one God in our lives. excuse me, Matthew chapter 6 here, and look with me at verse number 24. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. He says this, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Listen, Jesus designs a different solution for each person. Why? Because each of us have a different struggle that we have in our life to something we perhaps put in front of God. In Luke chapter 10, a lawyer came to Jesus asking the same thing. Hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus didn't say, hey, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. That wasn't his solution for that lawyer because he knew that man's problem was pride. Jesus asked him and said, what were the greatest commandments were? And the lawyer, of course, said, hey, love your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's correct. And the lawyer here, because he's a lawyer, is looking for a loophole. And so we ask this question, who is my neighbor? Excuse me. And the lawyer's looking for a loophole, and he wants Jesus to say this, all your Jewish brothers and sisters, those are your neighbors. Because a Jew has no problem loving a Jew. But instead, if you remember that story at all, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan that would be considered <coughs> to Jews to be a half-breed. 
See, the Jews didn't love Samaritans at all. They were, they were lesser. They didn't even consider them human, so to speak. And so Jesus realized that this person's problem is pride. And so he says, hey, what about the Samaritans? In other words, hey, when I say to love your neighbor, that means love even the Gentile. He didn't tell him to sell all he had and give it to the poor. That wasn't that man's problem. It was pride, a personal solution to get rid of the God that he had. In John chapter 4, Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. If you remember this woman at all, Jesus speaks to her, and she's looking for living water. Jesus didn't say, go sell all you have and give it to the poor. He, he says, he doesn't say, go and love your neighbor. When he asked for living water, her problem was, we knew that she was loving too many people already, and so she says what? Go and get your husband. She said, uh, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, yes, you've spoken correctly, uh, exactly, and he points out that she already had a God in her life, and it was the God of lust, uh, of unhealthy relationships here. And see, if you have a competing God ruling in your life, whether it's greed, whether it's pride, whether it's lust, whatever it may be, Christ has a personal solution and a unique way for you to replace that with the one true God in your life. And I'm so thankful that God is a personal God. He's a God that cares about the struggles that I have as an individual, and he has a solution specifically for me. He doesn't tell everyone, go sell all that you have, give to the poor. Uh, go and love your neighbor, although we should do those things. He says, hey, this is the God that you have in your life. This is how to get rid of that God and put God first place once again. And so we see here shocking advice. Then look at verse number 22. Mark chapter 10 and verse number 22. And Jesus continues to teach this rich young ruler. <coughs> Excuse me. Mark chapter 10 and verse number 22 says this. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. You know, it's interesting that Mark is the only one who gives us the tiny detail that Jesus looked at this young man and I pointed out and mentioned that he loved him. Mark's the only one that points that out at all. Now, listen, we know that God loves the world, right? We can look at John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and over and over we can see through his life that God loves the world. That's without a doubt true. We know that Jesus loves everyone, but I don't want you to forget that Jesus loves individuals. Sometimes we look out and say, Jesus loves you, and you think, as long as we're a group, that counts. But he loves you as an individual. He loves me as an individual. Jesus looked at this man, one person, and he loved him. And so we see this personal choice. He looks at you, and he loves you. Jesus really did want this man to make the right choice. Jesus really does want you and I to make the right choice. I was looking at, there's a, a painting, if I can get it to work here. There we go. Um, there's a painting by a German artist called Heinrich Hoffmann. And in this scene, Hoffmann captures the, the drama of this moment that's taking place here in this passage. And the rich young ruler is seen wearing his, his fancy clothes and his hat. And 
Christ is inviting him to give his money to the poor, as was mentioned, and, and to, you see in the background people there, and then to follow him. And the rich young ruler looks down as he ponders the, the most important decision he would ever make. Give away all his money and follow Christ, but he has so much. And in that moment, I think captured in this painting, he shakes his head and says, no, the price is far too high, and he walks away. And this is important. Not all stories end, and they lived happily ever after. He was a man with only two things, everything, and at the same time, nothing. And an important lesson to learn from this is Jesus offers eternal life, but listen to this. He is not going to force you to follow him. He offers it, but he will not force you to follow him. Someone wrote this, the saddest words of tongue or pen are these four words, what might have been. Just think, if Ben had gladly transferred his wealth to heaven and followed Jesus here, we might be reading his gospel account instead of Mark. Some people believe that perhaps this was a chance for him to become the 13th uh, disciple here because he knew, of course, Judas would be, uh, betray him eventually. But imagine how different his life would have been had he chose to give away his wealth and get, a rid, get rid of that false god and choose to follow Jesus with his life. But because he rejects Christ, his identity is lost to history. And I've said it before, and you've probably heard it before, but I think it's important to repeat it. God is omnipotent, right? <clears throat> he is all-powerful. God can do anything that he wants to do, but there is one area of the universe where he has restricted his omnipotence, and that's this, in the area of your will. God could use you as a robot and make you do what he wants you to do. He could very quickly do that, but he's given us a free will. God won't force you to accept his gift of eternal life because he wants it to be a relationship. He wants it to be your personal choice. Listen, teenager, just because your mom or dad or mom and dad have accepted Christ as their Savior and chosen to follow God does not mean you automatically will. You have to make that personal choice for yourself. Husbands and wives, just because your spouse has chosen to serve God faithfully does not mean you automatically will. You have got to make that personal choice. And that's why it is so amazing to see a God that loves us so much that he gives us that free will. And this man here chose in his free will to reject Christ, to hold on to those riches, and while having everything, have absolutely nothing at the exact same time. You and I have a personal choice. God will never force you to follow him. Look at verse number 23 with me this evening. <clears throat> it says, And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have the riches have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. This episode here I call the camel joke. Have you ever heard about the camel here? Jesus uses this hyperbole and humor to teach a powerful point. Now, Jewish humor, 
uh, as I read about it, was based upon impossible, ridiculous images, if I could put it that way. Jesus uses the largest animal in Israel, this camel, and then, of course, he uses the smallest example of man-made opening that he could think about to talk about the impossibility of trying to get a camel through that, the eye of a needle here that he talks about. Like, you're never going to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And so he uses this as an example here. And it seemed like Jesus didn't just speak about camels in this passage here. I looked in Mark at Matthew chapter 23, and he uses a, a pun, so to speak, to describe the Pharisees. And he tells them, you guys strain out a gnat, and he says, you swallow a camel. And so Christ here explains that it's impossible for a rich man to get through the eye, a rich man to get into heaven, just like it's impossible for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. And as I began to read about this, and some of you maybe have heard this before, some people have tried to explain away this saying by saying, oh, the eye of a needle was a, a small door made for people, and a camel could squeeze through, but it was really difficult. Kind of like, you know, it's hard, but it could happen. The only thing wrong with that is that it's wrong. As I was reading about this, a New Testament scholar writes, the needle that's in the book of Matthew and Mark is what's called a, a raphis. Maybe I'm butchering that word, raphis, raphis. While in Luke it's called a balone, both of these refer to needles that are used for sewing. And there's no evidence that there was ever a gate called the eye of a needle here. And so this gate idea, I think, was probably invented by someone um, who wanted to kind of comfort that idea of a wealthy congregation. Hey, you may be rich, but you can still get to heaven. And so what is Jesus saying here if he was being literal? What he's saying is this. It is impossible for a rich person or a poor one to enter into the kingdom of God. You say, does that mean people cannot get saved? No. Well, look here in this passage. Jesus says quite the differently. The point Jesus is making is that it is impossible for anyone to gain salvation through his or her own merit. Ben trusted what? His wealth. If he came, in, if he came into a situation, a problem in his life, what did he put his trust in? The money that he had, the objects that he had. What he owned was what he trusted more than anything else. Let me ask you this. What are you trusting today? Is there a competing God in your life? When you come into a hard time in your life, a difficulty, what is it that you put your, your faith and your trust in? We all have to come to Jesus the exact same way. Whether it's Bill Gates or, or a homeless, dirty man, all of us have to come to Christ the exact same way. This rich young ruler would have to acknowledge his complete and utter need for Christ and come as a guilty sinner. No matter how much he had or how little he had, and receive the gift of life from Christ. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be a rich man, a poor man, a beggar, a thief, a doctor, a lawyer, you know, a Native American tribal leader. Whatever you might be, there is only one way, and that's through Christ. And so we see this example where Jesus says it is impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, but then he gives good news in verse number 26 and 27. He says, And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? They asked this exact same question. He said it's impossible for a rich person to be saved. Who can be saved then exactly here? 
Jesus looking upon them saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. See, the disciples during this time and many folks during this time were under the impression that rich people were blessed by God. Well, if you have wealth, God has obviously blessed you, and so you must be doing what is right for him. (coughs) And after they hear this, that rich men cannot enter the kingdom of God, they begin to ask, if they can't be saved, who can be saved? And he answers with this profound truth, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Put it this way, God specializes in miracles. God specializes in miracles. When Moses had a sea in front of him and an army behind him, he faced an impossible situation. But God specializes in the impossible, and he makes this expressway right through the sea for these Jewish men, women, and children to go free. When David faces a nine-foot monster with simply a stone and a sling, God specialized in the impossible. God specialized in the impossible. Instead of David being afraid, God directs that stone to strike Goliath between the eyes, and then David used Goliath's very own sword to decapitate him. I read once someone said this, he showed everyone that there was someone who knew how to get ahead. But on When Gabriel visited a teenager named Mary, he announced that she would give birth who would be the son of God. You remember Mary asked this question, how can this be since I know not a man? And Gabriel said this, nothing is impossible for God. The same way in this passage, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, but it's a miracle when God takes a person through the door of salvation. Just a couple weeks ago, we had the chance to take a number of the teens down to the Ark Encounter and just to, uh, and to visit a number of uh, Christian colleges that were there just to, to see um, you know, how the Lord is directing in their life. And we got a small book for uh, my son Matthew, and it's titled The Door of Salvation. And it's a small animated book about, obviously, the door uh, that Noah went through to get into the ark, and that representing the plan of salvation and how important it is to go through that door. But there was only one door. And to think about what an amazing miracle it is for God to take a sinner like you and I and to wash us clean to where when God sees us, all he sees is the righteousness of Christ. It's something that we would say is impossible, but God specializes in miracles. Ben walked away saying this, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Hey, I'm searching for something. I don't know what it is. And he walks away from Jesus and says, I still don't know what it is that I'm looking for. Have you found life you won't find life in morality or, or, or religion. You'll only find it in Christ. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The first step to coming to Jesus is the admission that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. And isn't that hard? All of us have done wrong, but sometimes we struggle to admit 
that we've done wrong. It was interesting, I was uh, listening to uh, a while back, a well-known politician was at a uh, family leadership summit in Iowa, and he was asked this question, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And at first he kind of beat around the bush for a few minutes talking about you know, his religion and different people he knew. And he finally took a breath and this moderator asked this question again, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And then the gentleman said this, I'm not sure that I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from here. If I do something wrong, I just try to make it right. I don't bring God into the picture. And can I say this? It's not about bringing God into the picture. He is the picture. God is the picture. He's the artist of the picture that is life and this universe. And there is only one way you and I can approach God, and that is with humility and the admission that you and I are lost in this world without his forgiveness. And there is nothing you and I can do about it. And so theoretically, what's interesting is theoretically, there are three ways to get to heaven. You say, oh no, what's, what's Pastor Dave going to teach today? Well, Pastor's away, so I'm going to throw it. No, I'm just kidding. Theoretically, though, if you think about it, there are three ways to get into heaven. Number one is this. You could die before you reach the age of accountability. Now, if you understand what I'm saying, you've probably hit the age of accountability at this point. And so for you, that is probably not the case this evening. Number two, you can live a perfect life, you know, never once commit a sin of thought or action or, or attitude at all. You can just live a perfect life and that'll get you into heaven as well. But all of us, I think, know that that's not going to happen. And thirdly, you can fall on your knees and ask Christ to forgive you of your sins and to make you a new person. And that is the way that all of us have to go. The door of salvation that was offered through Jesus Christ. Ben... This rich young ruler had so much, but he ended up with absolutely nothing but the God of wealth in his life. And he walked away with sorrow and is lost to history. There may be someone in this room that you have a competing God in your life. It may not be wealth. What's that person or that activity or that hobby or that thought that you have that is always coming in front of God in your life. What is that false God that's been placed there? You may think you have everything you want or you need, but if you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. If you don't have Christ, you do not have life. And Christ is looking at you and I today, and I can I say that this? He loves you. He's looking at you and I, and he loves you. In spite of your faults and your failures and your mistakes and how many times you've let him down and disappointed him, he still loves you and me. And he looks into our heart, and he sees where we struggle. And he sees the false gods that we have in our life, and he says, get rid of those idols and follow me. I can give you a life that is really worth living. And so my first question is this. Have you accepted Christ as your personal Savior? Do you have Jesus in your life? Have you ever put your trust in him for salvation alone? If not, that's the most important decision you can ever make. I don't even want to take it for granted on a Sunday evening where I'm, so to speak, preaching to the choir very often, but to ask you, have you made the personal choice to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? No one else can make it for you. Mom or dad, husband or wife, grandma or grandpa, no one can make that decision for you except for yourself. 
Have you chosen to accept Christ as your personal Savior? If you have, let me ask you this question. Have you put a false God, have you put something in front of him in your life? Have you put God in second place, not perhaps intentionally, but as you look at it, you see you love something else more than him. My question for you this evening is, will you trust him and follow him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this evening for your word.